up, everybody? It's April Justine here with Bloods by Design, and you are listening to Strictly Shorties, the podcast about blood python and short tails and only blood python and short tails with everything you need to know just about them. Because frankly, I'm selfish and I love this species so much. And uh, yeah, uh, let's talk about them. Today, we are going to be talking about feeding. Uh, these are fat, heavy-bodied snakes, and overfeeding is so, so easy. And I am bringing on my friend Dan Magano of Magano Snakes. Is that, Dan, is that your business name? It is, right? Yeah, I just use that. I don't really have an actual <laughs> business name. It's just me. So. Okay. <laughs> well, hello and welcome. How are you doing tonight? Not too bad. Yourself? I'm good. This is uh, round two of yeah. us trying to give this a go. <laughs> we'll see how it works out for us. Um, frankly, I think it's going to be a better show. We were both okay. kind of just a mess the last time. Yeah, yeah, that is that is a fact. So I, I was thinking to myself, we can't do worse. But then I thought to myself, that might be a challenge. So I know, right? Oh goodness. Okay. So uh, how's your season going? What's going on with you? Season's going really well. Um, it's really compressed this year, which, to be honest, I usually hate. Um, I like my season stretched out a little bit more, where you have stuff kind of hatching throughout the season. Right now, it's like a six-week blitz of everything hatching so it gets a little bit much between trying to you know get them established got stuff coming out of the incubator trying to get pictures get stuff up get stuff sex get stuff feeding um so right now um so far i've had one two three four clutches of hatch so far i have one clutch that is basically due to hatch now uh today's day 58 so it could pretty much pip any day now. I thought it's it's weird. My incubator seems to be running a little on the hot side this year. What's hot but, for um, you? Um, pushing up towards like eighty eight. Okay. And uh, even though I have it set lower, I have multiple thermostats in there, but it seems to be like it'll say it's set at eighty seven and it's it's running eighty eight. So, but my stuff's been hatching later, which is weird. So I've had, really a lot of, weird. I've had a lot of pips at like day 64, 65, which is not what you'd expect with running that temperature. It's more of what I'd expect if I was down like 86. Right. Um, but basically these animals do whatever they want. So I'm just staying out of the way as best I can and managing it. But, but so far the season's been fantastic. Um, the skunk line stuff that came out is phenomenal. Um, I'm, exceeded my expectations tenfold like i had a vision of what i wanted and it's so much better than that so now it's just a challenge of where i'm going to take that to the next level which obviously is going to take several years but still very exciting there um that clutch that's coming right now is from lilith so i'm excited about that and then i have sumatrans wrapping up the season um in about two to three weeks approximately they're on like day 45 or 46 i think so they're getting close Oh, that's awesome. Sounds much better than mine. Mine's kind of a flop, but I had that freeze back in February, so I don't know. That probably affected some of the females that had eggs in them. Some of them just didn't go, and that's totally fine. I'll try again next season because they're, they're fat and chunky and, and good to go. Um, I have four eggs from my caramel Sumatran. They'd be het caramel, and I am actually super stoked about those. Those were those eggs are plump and huge and beautiful and should be starting to get dimply any day and then hatch. So I'm really excited to see what those look like. I just like I like Sumatrans anyway. They're like kind of my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm yeah, really well, excited to see those. It's nice to have snakes that don't want to kill you out of the egg typically. And even when they do, it's like a week or two and they're just like, OK, this is cool. 
Yeah, um, like fine. I'm the good. pythons I hatched this year are the most maniacal animals I've ever hatched to date. Uh-huh. And like, it's a level of anger I've never seen in something so small. Um, and of course, the one that I like the best, the one that's like an absolute hundred percent keeper, is the meanest one in the whole clutch because that's, that's the way always that goes. Always. Yeah, yeah, always. Uh, <laughs> I mean, just absolutely hates my guts. And it gets so angry that it literally like almost flips over backwards as it's like seething with rage that you would even look at it, let alone touch <laughs> it. And uh, it was funny because when I take them out of the incubator, I throw everything into like a quick soap real quick just to wash the vermiculite off, clean some of the egg goo off of them, gives them a chance to get hydrated, you know, right out of the egg. Yeah. And uh, it, it was floating. It looked like almost like the way like a cotton mouth floats down the river. It was just sitting there with its <laughs> head in flat. the air. Yeah, it was head in the air, like waiting for me to get close enough to bite me. And I'm oh, like, Jesus, goodness. man. I'm like, how are you this mad out of the egg? Like, you know, most, babies, most babies, you, you get like 24 hours before they even settle into being mean because they're so like, you know, everything's so new and they're just so confused and their their siblings are around. So they're not t- typically biting each other. So they kind of have like a little 24 hour window where they're not being total shit bags. But th- these ones did not play by that rule. I had one try to get me twice while it was pipped sitting in the egg and I was in there trying to move other babies out of the incubator. Like it came out of the egg after me. I'm like, are you are you? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Never seen what one so hell? mad. Yeah, I've, I've had that happen <laughs> once in how many years, and that one came after me twice. So. I haven't had any like that that bad. But yeah, I will say that most of my collection that I had a little bit of like feedback coming there. Sorry. Most of my collection that I have, um, honestly, they're kind of sassy. And, mm-hmm. you know, some people say it's just you, April. I'm like, no, nah, I, I don't think I do anything crazy. Um, but I also pick the ones that I pick them for their pattern and their genetics and not necessarily their personality. However, I believe I'm going to be changing that now because I'm just too old to deal with all that. And I just don't want to anymore. <laughs> well, it, it makes a difference after a while. There's some animals when it's just, it's unpleasant every time for both of you. Yep. And it's like, what are we even doing here? Um, <laughs> you know, and, and some of them, which it's frustrating because you can have a total stranger come in and pick that same snake up and that snake's totally chill. And you're like, really, dude? Yeah, I've, I've spent my whole life catering to you, and this is the thanks I get. But that's just how it is sometimes. Just certain animals don't click with certain people. Sometimes a change in scenery just kind of flips their personality a little bit, and it can go the other way too. You send a snake to somebody that's super nice, and then they get it, and it's a demon. And they're like, "Well, you lied." It's like, "No, I." I <laughs> it's like I promise I didn't, you know? and no, it was I, eating just fine too. So the fact you can't get yeah. it to eat, I don't know. <laughs> it, it happened to one of the snakes I sent to Rob. Like it, it was a demonic animal for him, and like I literally sent him videos before I brought that snake up to him, like of it sitting on my shoulder, going around the house, or out in the yard, hanging out. I'm like, I don't know, dude. It just hates your guts. And yeah, I, went I don't up know there what happened times. when I shipped it over, but... <laughs> yeah. no, I, I mean, I went up there a couple times and picked it right up, and it was fine. And it just wanted to kill him. And it took, like, a year and a half, I think, before that snake stopped, like, trying to kill Rob all the time. Just, That's crazy. <laughs> I also think, too, he was at Nerd at the time, and, and Nerd, their their whole facility is just way hotter than what mine is. Sure, so I, that's I think, totally possible. I think part of it was that, too, that the snake was just more irritated there. Um, and then the relationship I had with that animal was enough to where I could come up and mess with it, and it wasn't acting out, but stranger danger was, was not happening, I guess. So. <laughs> I guess you, you taught the child well. Yeah. <laughs> Be fearful of strangers. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's get into the topic of tonight, which is feeding. Um, 
you have a great video on your YouTube channel, and you have a really good, informative YouTube channel as is. It's still active, right? You're still uploading? Because yeah, I still get yeah. stuff from you. Okay. Yeah. I not still sure get stuff from you, too, even though you're not uploading. I know. I know. <laughs> it's been like, like a year. 18 months old. Like, what's going yeah, on? Yeah, I know. I know. I've been terrible. It just takes up so much bandwidth on my phone or my laptop, and it's just a pain in the butt to upload. I really don't so, mind actually videotaping and editing, but it's the uploading, man. So, so. You, what, one thing that I found, too, because YouTube was taking up massive amounts of space on my phone, deleting the app and reinstalling got rid of that problem for me. Huh. Um, it's, it still uploads terribly slow. But um, but yeah, I mean, at one point, my phone, I have like the 128, whatever, and it was like telling me I had no memory. I'm like, how? And right. YouTube was taking up like, you know, 54 of those or something. I'm like, what That's the weird. F? So I just deleted the app and reinstalled it, and all of a sudden, it was taking up like one. I'm like, huh. And, and did, so it, go, did it go faster? Because that's my issue. Like uploading um, for that. It, it, it's hit or miss. And it's weird because I find, which doesn't make sense to me, but I am not tech savvy. But I find that if I'm watching something on YouTube, like I'll cast it to my television. Yeah. So if, it, if it's got traffic going both ways where I'm like downloading something while it's uploading, it seems to upload faster, which doesn't make sense to me. You think that would slow it down. But once again, I don't understand technology. And that's just what I found that if I actually have something else going on, it seems to move faster. Well, I'll try that. Maybe. Yeah, I don't true. know. <laughs> I don't I know. I couldn't explain it. Maybe, maybe it's supposed to work that way. I, I don't know. But that's just what I found that seems to work for me. I think it'd be weird if I did this random like five minute video. Like, hey, just testing. One, two, three. <laughs> this, this is a test. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then take make, it down real make, quick. <laughs> but no, and then just, just stand there and make that sound with your mouth. Like that, that testing noise on, from the television commercials or whatever yeah. back in the day. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. Oh, that'd be terrible. People would hate me. <laughs> If people, if, if you're old enough to know what this is, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> All right. Anyway, uh, on your YouTube channel, you have a great video. It's an old video. Um, yeah. One of your, gosh, like, well, it's not one of your first by any means, but it's no, but one it's like of the, the older. Probably the first. It's, it's the first quarter of my channel for sure. If not, yeah, earlier. yeah. But it's yeah. really good, and it goes through um, feeding, overfeeding. Uh, different food types, uh, how the body changes when they do get fed. So I like to go into that because I think it was a very good presentation of the information that I think is pretty accurate. Um, so let's first start off with, uh, how, do you do a feeding schedule for your animals? So I really don't. Uh, and now I, I go through phases of stuff and I really feed pretty sporadically, I think is the best word for it. And in that video, I know I, I actually rewatched it tonight too. And aside from the fact that I said, I'm um, about 600 times and I wanted to reach through and strangle myself. Uh, it was put together fairly well as far as the content goes. But, uh, you know, I basically try to vary everything from size to prey type to, you know, frequency. I try to really kind of throw the kitchen sink at them because to me, that's a more natural approach to what they're designed to do. You know, these animals aren't designed to, to sit somewhere and have, you know, a consistent same size meal thrown at them every single week on the dot. It's just not the way that their body is designed to function. And us trying to kind of force them into what we're comfortable with doesn't really make sense to me. It's, it's too far from, from how they're built. You know, I always say that we're keeping in captivity and captivity is not the wild and there are some differences there, but there's certain aspects of the animal's, you know, biological makeup that we have to cater to in, in some form if we want them to, you know, survive the way they're supposed to. Right. 
Yeah, I, you know, so we recorded this the first time, what, like a week and a half, two weeks ago? And, and so I didn't feed my snakes at all that week. And then this week I ended up doing small rats because I was like, you know, this is fine. It's fine. Yeah. Well, I, just, I just fed like 30 right before we came on because, uh, you know, I haven't fed. I haven't fed the stuff that's on like medium sized rats just as a reference point in probably three to four weeks now. So I was like, ah, I'm going to feed tonight. I started thawing this afternoon, but, you know, I'm a Braves fan. We have a doubleheader today. So I watched the first game while the rats were thawing, and then I was like, oh, shit, I didn't change the water or do anything, so I got them rolling, and the second game started, and I was watching the second game, actually, right before we came on, and I was feeding. Uh, we were up 4-2 four to, four to two last I saw, so hopefully we hold on. But, uh, but yeah, I really, I really do try to, try to feed sporadically. I try to adjust the prey size and the prey type, and uh, one of the things I know we discussed last time and I discussed in the video is you know understanding the fat content breakdown of the prey items that you're feeding and how the age of a prey item affects that fat, fat content as much as the type. So if everybody's just feeding retired breeder rodents, for example, you know rats, all those animals are higher in fat content than a small or a medium or even a large rat that's younger, just because of the way you know mammals' bodies work. As we get older, we start to store more fat. We're less active. Uh, you know, our metabolism changes a little bit. We don't process things the same way. So these prey items are the same same way. So if everything's a retired breeder and it's two, three, four years old, well, now that fat content's higher than that younger, leaner animal. And so even feeding an absolutely perfect meal size on a perfect schedule, you still could be tipping the scales a little too high in fat content. And, uh, you know, as we know, fatty liver disease is something that, that really, really takes a lot of snakes far before their time. And you see all these people post videos and pictures of these, these necropsies or autopsies, whatever you want to call them. And, uh, you know, you see how the fat is with these animals and they're so streamlined and all their organs and everything are inside of, of that track. And so once that fat fills up, those can't function the way they're supposed to. It, it compresses on their lungs. It makes it harder for them to, to breathe. And then we mix that with too small of an enclosure and they're not able to stretch that lung out. They're never really able to clear that out, and then that causes respiratory issues. So there's all kinds of things that can happen just by, you know, your best intention at feeding, but not really paying attention to what and how often you're feeding. And you made a really good point, too, that uh, with snakes, that they hold their fat under their rib cages, where humans, we the fat is on top of the rib cage, so you can yeah. see it more. But with the snakes, it's more hidden. So you might not even, it might look like a healthy size, but it actually is still full of fat. Yeah. Yeah, that's where those those pictures to me are, are you know, they always say a picture's worth a thousand words, but it really is when you actually see all that fat sitting there. And you look at that, and, uh, you know, as, as I discussed in that video, with the Burmese pythons that they did these, these scientific experiments with down mostly based in Florida and everything as they've been trying to, you know, research ways to kind of combat the problem down there. We're actually gaining a lot of knowledge from that, you know, within the hobby, if we actually pay attention to it, of course. But, um, you know, we, we found out through research that when these snakes are eating, I think it's within like six hours of them taking a meal, like right away their body starts to kick into overdrive and within like six hours or so they're up and running where their, their body's moving towards like max capacity and they actually alter the genetic code within their body that, you know, normally tells your heart to get 
such a diameter or such a weight, now all of a sudden that can go up 40 to 100%. And so it needs space to expand. If all that fat's in there and that those organs are trying to expand, that's going to press down on them, create problems, could cut off blood flow, circulation issues, all those kinds of things, as well as, once again, the, the oxygen deprivation. And in order to eat, they actually increase the oxygen flow as well. So once again, you could be restricting that and, and causing problems with that process. And, uh, you know, one of the things that they, they discovered was that it's taking about 10 to 14 days for these animal systems to come back down to their default setting and back down to normal. And so these people that are feeding every single week are never, ever allowing these animals' bodies to get to a state of rest or in a constant state of stress. And, you know, I don't think you have to be a genius to figure out that a constant state of stress isn't good for anything. You know, they call stress a silent killer and, and stressing an animal's organs and body functions, you know, around the clock 24-7 for 10 years is going to burn that animal out that's meant to live 30. Right. So I think yeah. people really need to kind of grasp that concept and understand what we're doing. And I hope eventually they'll do research into other species because, you know, right now Burmese pythons are kind of the, the base point that we have. But I don't think berms have the slowest metabolism. I think bloods and short tails are slower. I think some boa species are probably slower. And then you have stuff like reticulated pythons that are a little bit faster. And then, you know, obviously colubrids tend to be much faster. But it gives us a base point and something to think about. And with adult snakes that are healthy and have good weight, why do we need to feed them all that often? That they're never, even your colubrid species are probably not eating as often as we're feeding them in captivity. And they're getting less exercise and not out hunting. So that's that's got to be considered as well. Yeah, and with adults, I find with blood pythons especially, with them being so sedentary and their metabolism um, being as slow as is, for for one, the meal you do give them, they seem to use up a lot of it. Uh, so that's one thing. Um, but I feel like they don't really lose weight if they go for a good amount of time without the food, you know, so right. they can really re- really keep it on. So it's not so much a concern. Now, if they're younger and if they're babies, it, it might be slightly concerning, but you just want to keep an eye on, on their their weight yeah, you know babies babies obviously i think their system's kind of built a little more take a little bit more stress early on because obviously the goal is to get up get to, to size, size. <laughs> yeah in, in a reasonable amount of time because then you have less predators then you're, you're able to breed and propagate so the first two or three years you have a lot more room for error but after that third year their metabolism starts to slow down and by like five years old it's really low and then from then on, it's, it's really low for the rest of their life. And, and what you just talked about kind of brings up two things that I discussed, one in that video and one in another. Uh, the one in that video, of course, my brain is going to train wreck right now. I'm not going to know what I'm <laughs> talking about. Um, but one of them where you said that they really – oh, okay, I, I know. So you talked about how if you don't feed them for a while, they don't really tend to lose weight. So mm-hmm. when you, you have an animal that's overweight and you want to take weight off of it, if you stop feeding it, what you're going to do is slow that animal's metabolism down even more. And so now, just like with us, if we were to try to starve ourselves, it triggers your body to hold on to fat and hold on to things because now it's concerned that it's not going to get sustenance to replace it and it needs to, to maximize what it has available. And so snakes work in a similar fashion where if you just stop feeding them, it's going to slow that metabolism down. They're going to get less active and they're going to conserve their energy and they're not really going to drop the weight you want them to drop. You try to get them encouraged to be more active, and that might mean taking them out of their enclosure and spending some time with them or, you know, just, just finding a way to get them to move within the enclosure. 
but also feeding them smaller meals on a somewhat consistent basis. So you might have a 20-pound blood python, 25-pound blood python, whatever, and you're just going to give it a smaller medium rat, just enough to keep that metabolism running, keep the body recognizing the fact that food's coming in. And you do that every two or three weeks or something. It's not it's not enough you know, food where it's going to pack weight on the snake, but it'll keep that metabolism up and running coupled with the exercise. And it takes a long time. It's not easy to take weight off of these animals. Uh, it's easy to put it on. It's not easy to take it off. So you really kind of want to prevent that as opposed to, you know, deal with it once it happens. And I'm thinking second, when you say that is like, same, me too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. I look at food, I get fatter. I work yeah. out for six months and I get fatter too. Weird process. Um, oh. It's absolutely true. But, uh, but yeah, so the second part of what you said was that they do a lot with the meals they have. And I did a whole video on the adaptive ballast theory and why bloods and short tails hold on to their stool for so long. And part of the reason that they do it, you know, supposedly there's, there's no science hasn't absolutely figured it out yet, but these theories to me make a lot of sense. One, the longer you hold on to it, the more nutrients you can suck out of that one meal. So bloods and short tails absolutely do a good job of getting everything out of whatever they eat. Um, which also means they don't need to eat as much because they're really maximizing it. You know, when you feed, you know, say you have a rat snake, you feed it, that thing's pooping in four or five days after that meal, maybe seven days. Blood pythons sometimes notoriously go three months, six months, eight months, upwards of a year. There's been instances of 14 months without having a bowel movement. And so the secondary part of that reason that they think, uh, which is A, why the snakes are structured the way they are, and B, why they hold on to it, is they think that they're actually using it as a ballast. And so what it allows them to do by holding on to that stool is it allows them to basically anchor themselves and take on larger size prey. So now you have a snake that maybe was 20 pounds, but if it's holding on to two or three pounds of waste, now it's got more weight in the back. So when it goes to strike, it's anchored better to the ground. It gives it a little bit more weight. So the animal that it's trying to overpower can't drag it off. Uh, and then basically the, the cool thing for them is as opposed to growing larger and now having more body mass to have to, you know, require a caloric intake, you've got all this waste in there that doesn't take anything from your body. So you're not having to feed extra muscles and extra fat and extra, you know, tissue and blood flow and all this stuff. So it allows them to stay smaller, but overpower larger prey. So while it's a theory, it makes 150% sense to me that that's a really good evolutionary advantage to you know, not need food as often to be able to up your meal size that you can overpower and with minimal, you know, responsibility from your body to take care of that extra weight. So it's a really, really kind of genius thing that these animals are doing that, uh, you know, we have to keep in mind in captivity. So if I have a snake that's really gone a long period of time, which honestly in my collection doesn't happen very often, I would say my, my snakes are pretty regular every one to three months. But yeah, if, if they really have gone a long period of time, sometimes I'll swim them. You know, sometimes I'll take them out in the yard if the weather's nice, get them moving around. Because a lot of times if you get them moving around enough, they'll drop at least something, even if it's, you know, they'll, they'll pee, whatever you want to call it. I know that technically snakes don't pee, but these snakes, <laughs> these snakes pee a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I can't tell you how many people argue, no, 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 your eights are all hard. I'm like, yeah, okay, sure. <laughs> like you want to come play in the – an inch the of water flood. that's in the bottom <laughs> the of my zone. snake's cage. Yeah. 
And uh, and I've had I've had that conversation with several people. Oh, the snakes don't pass liquid. I'm like, oh my god. Listen, I know it's not technically urine because it doesn't pass through whatever was the gallbladder or whatever that makes it considered urine or whatever that is. I'm not a. a you're like, but this is liquid person. waste. <laughs> yeah, it smells like pee. It looks like pee. It floods the entire cage. It really it's can be than, overpowering. It smells worse yeah. than pee. It's gross. <laughs> it can be. You very can if you have a, a whole bunch of different species. If you keep bloods and other species, you and like I had this guy had anaconda before, and I could tell if it was the anaconda that pooped, oh, yeah. if yep. it was my corn snakes that pooped, or if it was mm-hmm. my bloods that pooped. Yeah. It was gross. Yeah, no, I, I can recognize species too from over the years and also sometimes I can tell you what they ate too because when you give them birds, it smells different coming out. Guinea pigs can smell a little different coming out, so Ugh. it's, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know where that, where that life skill comes in handy, but I've got it. <laughs> oh, very proud of you, Dan. <laughs> yeah, thank you, thank you. I'm a, I'm a shit sniffer. Um, so, you know, you just brought up again, feeding different prey items. Now I don't do that cause I don't really have the availability, um, mm-hmm. or the budget necessarily, depending upon where, you know, I'm sourcing this from. Um, so mine mostly actually always just get mice or rats and that's what they get. Um, but for you and varying up the diet, uh, which I think is a great idea. I just can't do it. Um, yeah. can't is hard. I'm not going out of my way to do it let's say that um but have you found that any of them get stuck on one piece of food item like they only want chickens or they only want you know whatever it might be guinea pigs like you said yeah it can happen bloods and short tails i have not really had it happen with i've seen it happen with like adult male berms where once they get on chicken sometimes that's what they want uh, my male australian water python as a matter of fact he's the only one that didn't eat tonight that i thawed for uh, but he will, he's weird. Like he likes to hang out underneath his water dish and he's got a big water dish and he circles around underneath there and stuffs himself underneath it. And, uh, so in order to feed him, I have to pick it up. And once you pick it up, it pisses him off. So then he doesn't want to eat anything but chicks at that point. If he's out and about, he'll take rats, but it's just one of those quirks where if he's pissed off, he wants to throw a fit and his like, you know, Achilles heel is chicks. If you put a chicken in, he's like, oh man, I gotta gotta have that. So he'll come out of his little attitude. But like tonight, he wouldn't take the rat. If I had thought a chick for him, he would have eaten it. Uh, But he will take rats. You just have to have them in the right situation. And what's really annoying is I like to have them on substrate, but he kind of prefers paper. Mm -hmm. And he he prefers his paper to be like stupid dirty. And when it's stupid dirty, that snake will eat every time. He's like so much more relaxed, easygoing, but it's like, I don't want to leave my snake filthy all the time, but that's, right. that's like what, that's what he wants. Yeah. He, he, he literally mounds up the paper into like a paper mache pile and he'll poop all in it and piss all in it. And then he just loves it. And I'm like, dude, this is not the way. Like, <laughs> we I have a Borneo that's kind of like that. It's like, I give her fresh paper, fresh water. She instantly floods the cage, not only with water, but also pee. And then poop smears is just, yeah, it's, it's awful. They'll do it every time consistently. And it's like, like, I don't want to clean you twice. I want to clean you once. Stop yeah. doing this. <laughs> and, then, and then I have other snakes that like could not be neater. Like my female olive python is like the cleanest, tidiest snake of all time. Like she goes to the bathroom in the same general area all the time. And when she goes to the bathroom, she won't touch it, crawl through it, nothing. Like she's just cleaning her cages of breeze. just grab a piece of paper out throw them out, change it. If she's on substrate, just drag this up, you know, like it's never a mess. So it's just weird how different animals operate. 
Do you feed your snakes in their cage or do you take them out? Everything I've ever owned is eaten in its cage. Yeah, me too. (laughs) I only ask that, obviously, because that's, you know, something you'll see uh, when people newer to snakes come on. When I was newer to snakes, people told me, you know, you go to the pet store, they tell you, make sure you don't feed in the cage because it'll be cage aggressive. Drives me up a wall. Yeah, I've I've not found that to be the case. If you have a defensive animal, they're just going to be defensive. If you have a nice animal, it's going to be nice, whether it eats or not in the cage. And that's that's the problem is that. The people that believe that aren't smart enough to, or have don't have enough experience. I shouldn't say not smart enough because that's not fair, but don't have enough experience to read the animal's body language. So they don't even know why that animal's striking at them. There, there's a difference between feeding behavior, defensive behavior. Some snakes are just irritable. It's not even defensive. Some, I mean, the, the fact is some snakes are just assholes. Uh, no matter yes. what, what we tell people, <laughs> there are some that are just jerks. Just like there's people that are jerks. There are snakes that just have an issue with everything and anything and just have to make sure that the whole world burns around them. Um, it's few and far between. And I think a lot more people try to use that as an excuse than as valid. Um, most people don't want to put in the time and effort and then keepers just don't realize how much like their nervousness or their mannerisms are affecting the behavior of their animals. And I think that's the biggest thing with the moving to feed thing. Mm-hmm. Because what happens is you talk to these people and they're convinced in their head that this is real, but you can convince them to try it. And so they'll start feeding the snake in the enclosure. But now when they're going into the enclosure in the back of their mind, they're still convinced that this is real. So their approach has changed and they don't even know that it's changed. And so now the snake does start biting because they're coming in differently and they're telling the snake something's off. And so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where these people are like, well, nope, see, now I'm feeding it in the cage and it's being cage aggressive, but they're not realizing they're hesitating a little bit when they're reaching in now, or they're reaching in with their left hand instead of their right hand now. And these, these animals are smart enough to realize when things are different and when things feel off. And so if you have a snake that's already an edgy animal or, or a little on the higher strung side or whatever the case may be, now this little bit of change can be enough to basically create a problem that never existed. And trying to explain that to people, they just don't listen. So it's a, it's kind of a, a dead end street most of the time. And I have to say, if your animal is already defensive as is, moving it to feed it is for the ones that I have that are super defensive, moving it to feed it would just be the dumbest idea ever because I'm going to hype it up more than mm-hmm. I need to. And then if it eats, it's probably going to be staring at me, you know, watching me the whole time. So it's not probably not going to eat. Um, and then if it does and I have to move it back, that's going to be a whole issue. And then I'd be afraid about regurge because there'd be so much movement. There'd be flailing yeah. around. You know, the Borneo's doing right. the alligator roll oh type God. of thing. You know, like oh. that that that's so much activity. There are some animals that you can feed and you can just move back into yeah. the cage and it's fine yeah. and it's no problem. Um, you know, people talk about not handling after eating. Like if it's just something like that. You know, that that's going to be okay. But that excessive movement that they're going to do, I'd be so worried that it would regurge. And if you've Oops. ever smelt a regurged animal. <laughs> it's not pleasant. <laughs> it is a different level from just a dead and decaying yeah. animal. It is different. Yeah. And, then, and then there's different levels of regurge. Is it right away? Is it yep. three days later? There's there's different levels of that. because the Or the regurge that's just that like system. bones and fur. Oh. Have you had that before? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. At least those those smell, but they're not overpowering. Like when the whole item comes back up. Yes, this is true. But what's annoying is it's enough of that smell 
where you know it's somewhere in the room and then you're trying to figure out where it is. And it's always some little tiny smear. And they like hide it under their paper. Yeah, it's underneath a piece of paper. So you're like, where the hell is it coming from? I went through It's like everything. you look in the cage, it's not there. You're like, okay, you're good. And like, I just looked yeah. through everyone. Where is it? Yeah. Or they're sitting on it and you don't realize it, you know, and Ugh. it doesn't look like it. Oh, it's brutal. And then they want to uh, fight you over it. It's like, well, you didn't want it to begin with. So. Right. Um, something I do want to say, since we did, well, I brought up regurgitation, is that if your animal does regurge, um, I won't feed it for a good couple weeks because that really uh, puts an imbalance to their internal digestive system um, yeah. and causes a lot of havoc. Uh, so you want them to kind of calm down and then give them a smaller meal for the next time that you feed them uh, mm-hmm. just to make sure that they're uh, okay and, and good to go. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then if you are, if you have access to frozen thought, a lot of times frozen thought is a little bit easier to get down, uh, you know, because it's, it's, already started a little bit of a breakdown at some point as opposed to a live prey item. So you're just a little bit ahead in that process and aiding that animal in digestion. So that, that can help if you're trying to deal with an animal that has regurgitation issues and you've given it the time, that's something you can do, you know, a smaller meal that's already started to break down is a lot easier for them than to process. That makes uh, sense. Overall. Didn't think about that, but that makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's, it's, it's a pain when you have animals that have regurge issues, especially younger animals, because now you have to give them all that time between them when they're younger. Like they don't bounce back with long Mm-mm. breaks yeah. between meals, like a healthy adult, you know, if that thing didn't eat for six months, it's, it's still going to hang in there. But young hatchlings or stuff under a year old, they don't have that kind of window. So when they start regurging and do it, you know, two or three times in a row, now all of a sudden that's like eight weeks before that animal gets a meal down. That's, that's a problem. So, if I have a, if I have a baby, well, baby up to six months old, if it regurges like three times in a row, I almost write that animal off. Like I'll keep trying, but I'm not going to get my hopes up for that animal just because yeah. like something is just not allowing this animal yeah. to do well. Yeah. And then further, I wouldn't want to, you know, send that animal to someone else, even if it did start eating well for me. Um, I would be hesitant to sell that animal or use it for breeding because something was wrong with the animal. I'd rather be breeding, you know, really strong animals that have good genes and are successful, you know. That's why I have that little blue ghost here still, that little male, (laughs) because he had regurgitation issues for like the first year of his life on and off. And he hasn't knocked on wood in a long time, maybe once in the past like two years but it's like I just didn't feel comfortable selling him to somebody, and then now he's just been here so long. It's like, wow, well, I don't want to get rid of him just because he's been here for, you know, what, three years and change now? Like, this is home to him. I don't want to uproot him. I thought about it. I actually posted on Facebook a while ago and said if somebody was looking for a pet only, I'd talk with them. Um, but it's like, I don't know. I, I, I always feel bad. Once a snake's been with you a certain amount of time, like, they're adjusted and the older they get, the harder it is for them to adjust to a new environment. So I always feel guilty about that. And I, the thing I wonder about is when I say pet only, they might say, yeah, it's going to be a pet only. And then they end up breeding it anyway, you know, Mm -hmm. or somewhere down the line, it ends up getting bred. So if you don't want it to be bred, then you need to keep it because that's the only way you can control that. Right. Yeah. And I, I have, um, there's one or two animals I, I have out in the world that I were pet only, but the people that I sent them off with, I, I trust. Like and, legitimately, you know, you know they're going to be pet only. <laughs> right. They're, yeah. They're, I mean, I've been to these people's houses plenty of time. I know them well. They're not even breeding their other animals anyway. So it's not like, you know, in this case, they don't even have another one of it. So what are they going to breed it to? Um, but 
but yeah, so I, I, I try to do my best with that. And I absolutely promise, like if I sold somebody a pet only animal and they gave me their word and they bred it, I would do everything I possibly could to ruin every day of their life. Like there would be no question. I would rain everything that I could possibly muster. I would spend every day of my life on social media, making sure everybody knew, <laughs> like I would, I would absolutely go that because at the end of the day, I don't, I don't, it's not because you violated your, your promise to me or your word to me, but it's because there was a reason why that animal shouldn't be bred and yep. you put in your own BS ahead of that animal and that I'm not going to gonna let it happen. Yep. Um, if there was a new person, this is like our conversations always go off on so many tangents. So I'm bringing it back. <laughs> um, if you had a new person that uh, wanted to get into bloods or short tails and they asked you what was a good guideline for feeding, what would you tell them? Well, now of course it depends on the animal they're getting, but uh, let's assume that they're going to get it. They're going to start with, you know, an animal that's like three to six months old, something, you know, in that range. Mm-hmm. Okay. At that at that point, you know, you can feed that animal every seven to ten days. You know, those babies are gonna they're gonna do do just fine. You know, if you throw them a rat pup that often. I, as a general rule, if I see my snakes in blue, uh, I don't feed them. Just to me, I know that the two most taxing processes they go through are shedding and eating, and so if I can avoid you know, combining those two, I do. That doesn't mean I've never fed a snake and shed. It doesn't mean I think you're a horrible person if you do. I just look at it as undue stress with two of the most taxing things going on in their body at the same time. So, you know, once in a while I thaw food, I don't realize the snake's going into shed. You know, you open the tub and now it comes flying out for food. I'm not going to be like, well, not today, you know. So (laughs) we let it happen because that's going to create stress either way. If I take that food now from that animal that's in that mode, it's going to push, it's going to be upset. So, you know, I do occasionally do it, but I try to avoid it. I know an animal is in shed. I don't thaw food for it. I don't feed it. Um, But, yeah, so I would say you could start off on that schedule, you know, and then you, when the animal reaches a year old, 18 months old, you start to evaluate how's the animal's body condition look. You know, you're starting to get a little better feel at that point for the animal's personality and activity level. So is this one of those snakes that literally just sits there constantly, or is it one of those snakes that, is curious about what's going on in the room, moves around a little bit more. You find it in front of the cage, back of the cage, over here, over there, you know, whatever. And then you just adjust from there. And uh, I also mentioned, I think last time and on that video, that I also just like to give these animals a period of time where they get a few weeks with no food, at least once or twice a year. You know, breeding females kind of automatically have a window worked in there where they're not going to eat for maybe six weeks. Um, my males, like right now, I'm, I'm starting to, uh, to feed them a little bit more right now than I do during the normal part of the season. And then come about mid September, late September, I'm going to back them down. Uh, same with the females. I'm, I'm just starting to hit the females hard go that are going to breed this year, going into the breeding season. And, uh, you know, and then I'll back them off once they start getting paired up. I still feed throughout breeding. Uh, obviously separated. I don't feed the males and females in the same cage. So I'll, I'll pull them out, feed them, give them a week or so, two weeks, whatever it is, to chill, and they'll go back together at some point. Uh, but yeah, it's just uh, a lot of it is trial and error. Play, but play it by year. Pay attention to your animals, and hopefully, in that year or two years where you're evaluating changing up your feeding schedule, you're 
getting more and more knowledge or paying more and more attention to how every meal affects your animal's body tone, how they look, the shed cycles they're going through, you know, whatever it is. And at the end of the day, every animal is an individual with an individual metabolism. So you have a basis, but you really do kind of have to adjust to whatever's best for that animal. And my my general pattern, and this is very general and, you know, varies between animals. You have some animals that hold on to the weight and some animals that don't. Yeah. Um, to, what is my cat doing? Sorry. Um <laughs> So for the first like year and a half of the animal's life, I will probably feed it weekly. Um, and then once it gets to a point when it's on like medium smalls, uh, that's when I will go to every two weeks or so. Sometimes I'll do it more because I just feel generous. Sometimes I do it less because I forget or I yeah. don't have enough money to buy rats or I miss the cutoff for the order or whatever it might be. That is the um, reality. The reality is... I don't feed even as much as I intend to because you get busy and work's going on. You know, I have over a hundred animals right now. I work 50 hours a week. I commute. I have to take care of the lawn. I have to walk the dogs. I have to go grocery shopping. Like sometimes you just don't get to certain things. And, and I'll admit feeding is the thing I hate the most. With and and for it's adults, I, hate. I don't worry about the adults if, if nah. they, you know, go off feed, but I will make a point to make sure I feed my babies up to, you know, Nine months old, once I get past the nine-month mark and they're pretty chunky and pretty good, then I can, you know, not yeah. feed a couple more times and it's okay. However, with babies, I really don't want to miss a feeding if I, you know, don't have to. No, um, no my adults, get... there's times where, my adults, there's probably times where it's like six weeks where I'm like, oh, yeah. here you go. And yeah. they, don't, they don't miss a beat. They don't notice. Mm-mm, mm-mm, not at all. No. Um, and then, let's see, my two-year-old, two, honestly... They're just the the food size is different, but I'm basically doing anywhere from, you know, do it a week in between, three weeks in between. My adult males, I generally will only feed once a month. Um, I don't like my adult males to be very large. Um, they're yeah. about the max I think I have is an 11-pound male, I think, mm-hmm. is my max, I think. About 11 right, or yeah. 12, right about there. Um, and then, you know, my females, I keep it around 15-ish. So they're not really even that big either compared to some people that I've seen. No. I mean, and not to say that that's wrong or not, you know. You can have no, big I mean, ones. Yeah. Well, I was going to say genetics obviously has a lot yeah. to do with that. So certain animals are just going to get larger. Certain ones are going to stay smaller. Uh, I have, you know, Raiden and my big T positive girl. The big T positive is over a foot longer than Raiden. And they both, you know, have been raised basically the same, fed the same schedule. There's nothing different. It's just she's got bigger genetics. So Raiden is probably five foot six, five foot seven, and, and the big T positive is over six eight. So it's just she's just a big girl. But even even her, she's only thirty pounds when she's at breeding weight. Right now she's probably twenty six because she just laid eggs, you know, not that long. And ago. I would say that big of a female is not I don't think it's that common. No. Someone was no. talking to me recently about like how heavy are they're going to get so big and they're going to be, you know, six feet long and 30 pounds. And I'm like, I, some of them, sure. But I don't think that from what I've seen, I don't think that's a normal. And to me, 30 pounds at six feet is overweight. You know, like I said, to she's, me too, yeah. she's, she's 6'8 and she's 30 when she's going into a breeding season. When it's a season, when she has a season off, I keep her probably around 28, 28 and a half, you know, just estimate. I, I, I don't really weigh my snakes anymore. I did weigh her a couple of times just because I was curious. And I weighed a couple of babies this year because I came out of the incubator humongous, which are her babies, go figure. Um, 
but they came out, one of them came out, I'm like, are you like a year old? Like what, what's been going on in there? I had uh, the first half of that clutch, like six of the babies were over a hundred grams. Like those are big babies coming out. Yeah. Wow. Um, and that's and nice that they have big babies. That's yeah. Nice. Yeah. It's, they're little spitfires. They're full of hate and size and <laughs> wonderful, wonderful combination. But, uh, but yeah, so they, they surprised me when I opened that egg box and I was like, what the hell, who snuck you in here? You didn't come out of this clutch. But, uh, but yeah, and then, you know, I've had baby bloods come out at, at 50 grams, you know, you just don't know what's going to come out. But. Yep. And from the same clutch, you can have huge ones and small yeah, ones. Yeah. This clutch has quite a bit of variance in size. Yeah. I probably have a few that are 65 grams in there, give or take. I didn't weigh them, but just guessing. Honestly, once you weigh a couple of them, you can kind of estimate size. Yeah. I don't, Especially when it comes to adults. I don't know. That's one of those things when you're like selling snakes that drives me crazy. People are like, what do they weigh? It's like, does it matter? I like, know. Oh my gosh. I, I why, why does that matter? Like there's literally I'm like, it's no... about this old and it's eating this prey item. That's about yeah. all I'm going to give you. <laughs> there's no, there's literally no reason why you need to know the weight of a baby snake. Like it's years away from breeding. So that doesn't matter. Um, you know, the only the only time like I would say that weighing snakes is useful is like if you suspect there's a problem and you're feeding that mm, snake sure. and it's not growing and maybe you want to track and see, okay, this thing's losing weight slowly over time. Maybe there's a parasite problem, maybe there's something health wise. So it can be useful. I'm not saying it's completely useless, but like there's no reason when you're buying a snake to ask how many grams it weighs unless you're buying like an adult snake that's around breeding size and you're trying to plan to gauge. Yeah. Yeah. To gauge that. And even then, to be honest, like, why are you doing that? That's a whole nother conversation for another time. <laughs> but yeah, baby snakes, I just don't understand that obsession. It's such a weird thing. So and I, I know, know with some people with ball pythons, they give a certain size prey item. Yeah. It's actually a good like transition to what I want to talk about too, but they would base it off of weight. Like you have you, I don't even know what it is because I yeah, do I've, not I've heard, do it this way. Yeah, I've heard people talk about that too. It's such a bizarre thing because like, how is that anything close to how they're feeding naturally? Right. I don't know. Is it like ten percent? Like I feel like it should be ten percent. I don't know though. I feel like that. Yeah, I don't remember. Every time anybody's gotten that tangent, I just walk away. (laughs) It's like okay, you have fun talking about this. Right. I always, I I always go. I don't weigh my animals in grams. I weigh them in pounds. (laughs) Well, well, I, I do too because I uh, bought the wrong scale when I did get a scale a long time ago, and I bought one that does ounces instead of grams. I'm like, I'm not gonna convert every time. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So like those babies that came out of the incubator, they were like 3.4 ounces. I'm like, all right, now I got to crunch the numbers, you know. Uh, oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny, actually. Yeah. Quite yeah. funny to me. Yeah. Um, but based on, you know, the size of, of food, we talked about, you know, feeding schedules, how much, giving guidelines on that, um, the difference in fat content. We talked about that. But how do you know what size is a good size to feed your animal? Um, When I first started keeping snakes, I was told that you want to feed a prey item no bigger than the biggest part of their body. I feel if I did that with bloods, I'd be feeding rabbits every time. (laughs) So so what what do you – like what is your – your how-to guidebook or it's one of those things I've really, to be honest, we never thought about because I guess, 
you know, and maybe I did once upon a time, but after nearly 20 years of working with animals, like it's just that's so second nature. Like I just have a plan in my head and just go with it, but I don't really ever think about, you know, plus having so many snakes, I basically have a freezer full of every prey item size you can imagine. So even when I acquire something, it doesn't really matter. I always have something here. Uh, the only time that it ever factored in, which is getting a little bit away from this is when I got, uh, that male Cape York spotted python. And from the pictures, I thought he was like three times the size that he was. And he got here. And I'm like, oh shit, I need like two day old pinkies, which I don't have because blood pythons and short tails come out of the egg eating bigger than that. Right. Uh, so that, that was the only time that ever, I ever had to scramble for food. Uh, and then he ended up getting out of literally getting out of probe hole of the cage and I never found him. Oh God. Um, yeah. <laughs> and it was one of those things. Like I had this cage set up and the picture, I swear to God, if you look at the picture, you'd think the snake was like two and a half, three feet. And then he came in and he was like fish bait. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm like, this person must have the smallest hands ever in the history of hands. And I like, actually I, vowed to myself that I will never buy a corn snake under a year old. Yeah. Oh, it's just, it's miserable. <laughs> like trying to keep track of that thing. And keep I lose anything. them. Yeah. I've lost two not, already. Not, not only that, but like, it's funny when I got that Thai bamboo rat snake, mm-hmm. like I, if you gave me a choice of sticking my hand in that thing's tub or just sticking my arm in my female, adult female olive python's cage, I would go with the olive python because snakes that small, like I am so afraid to hurt them that mm. like, I don't know how to handle them. And, like it I don't know how to get you off weird, of me. <laughs> yeah, in a weird way. Like I'm afraid I'm going to crush you. If I try to pick you up, I'm trying to like scrape you onto my hand. Like when I find ring necks outside. I'm like, I'm so afraid to hurt them touching them. I like, try to get them to crawl into my hand on their own. Cause I'm like, Oh man, I'm going to smash this little thing. So I, I'm much more comfortable with larger animals with a little more bulk to them than I am with, with tiny, tiny colubrids for sure. So what if like, okay, you, I don't know, you bought a baby animal from someone mm-hmm. and it's about two, we'll say the three months, it's about three months old and you're feeding it rat pups. How do you know when you need to bump that up? I guess I would just start to look at the comparison of that rat pup to the snake. And to me, like, I always, I always think like if a snake looks like it's struggling to coil a prey item because the prey item's too small, I think that's a sign that it's time to, to bump up the prey item size. Uh, and I, I vary size anyways within an animal. So even once I do bump them up, I still might throw them some smaller stuff from time to time, even when they're younger. Uh, I just, I vary everything. So like my, my hatchlings, the first, basically what I do with hatchlings when I get them is I give them two live meals to start. And that could be hopper mice up to small adult mice, depending on how big the hatchlings come out. Like these blood pythons, obviously I just got small adult mice because they're huge. Mm-hmm. So a hopper mouse to them is just like, they can't even, they go to bite it. It'll be in their mouth. It doesn't make sense. They can't <laughs> it, you know? Um, so I'll do two live meals like that. And then I switch them over to frozen. And, uh, you know, sometimes the first time is successful. Sometimes they take a little bit of transition you know, and then I, I get them onto rat pups. And then once they're on rat pups pretty steady, I'll occasionally throw them a mouse again. I have baby quail. I'll mix in baby quail for them from pretty early age, get them up to the size where they can start taking, you know, chicks from chickens. I'll rotate those in. You know, rats are definitely my predominant and main food source. You know, same reasons you discussed. It's the most available, most 
economical most of the time. So that's the basis of what I'm feeding. And then I mix in everything from there. And I don't have a schedule for mixing it in. It's just, you know, when I'm thawing food, if I'm thawing food for a rack of 20 snakes, I might thaw 15 racks and five quail or chicks and I'll feed a few here. And then the next time I do the same thing and I give the chicks and quail to a different snake and just, just rotate it like that. So there's no real rhyme or reason to it. It's just, as I think about it, I throw a few in every time and, and just do that. But yeah, I would say if you if you notice they're struggling to coil the prietum because it's really small, or if the prietum's in their mouth and it's just obviously dwarfed, um, and and even the the largest, you know, it's it's interesting. You always hear that the largest prietum you should give them is like the largest part of their body, and then you see olive pythons eating crocodilians that are like three times their size. And, <laughs> yeah, you know, they feel like they're going to explode. Yeah, and, and there's been some conversations because, you know, if you've noticed in captivity, a lot of these snake species are getting smaller and smaller. So it used to be very routine that most, you know, boa constrictors were, were getting over eight feet. And now it's like most are stopping at five and a half, six and a half. You see the occasional, you know, larger sizes. But there used to be a lot of boas that were 10, 10 feet plus. And you, mm-hmm. you, see them, you don't see them often anymore. Burmese pythons, a lot of Burmese pythons now, males are are growing to nine feet in captivity. Females are getting 12 or 13. You know, those females used to routinely get, you know, 16, 17 feet plus, and and the males used to get 15 feet. And, uh, you know, genetics obviously play a part in there, but there's some things that I've heard where people think because we're not ever challenging them with larger meal sizes, that there's no real reason for them to have to get bigger to overpower those larger meals or be able to take them down. And so I don't know, given what we know about how their genetic code is able to change itself based on food intake, then it's possible that maybe there's something there where their body doesn't tell itself to get that big because it doesn't feel like there's any need. And I don't know if anybody's... Yeah, I don't know if anybody's ever thrown anything at that and tried that. I'm not telling people that I suggest you, you know, throw your snakes humongous meals because a humongous meal is a risk factor. You know, something can go wrong. Not only that, but if your heat's too low and now that animal's not digesting fast enough, it can cause problems within their digestive system and make the animal sick if it's taking too long to break down, things like that. You know, whereas in nature, these animals can move and find the perfect microhabitat for what they need in captivity. We limit them to a two foot cage, three foot cage, four foot cage, six foot, whatever it is. So no matter how much gradient we're offering, you know, we're not, we're not giving them what the wild has where they can find a a habitat that gives them the security they want with the temperature they need, with the humidity that they need. You know, there's there's endless availability out there of different microhabitats. So in their, in their cage, they have to pick, well, I want this temperature, but that temperature means I have to be out, not in my hide. And so now they have to pick and choose between that security and that temperature and, and things like that. So I think we have to keep that in mind. And so that's why I don't push them with big meals because there's just more potential for issue there. And I don't see the upside to it. I don't care if my snakes get huge, if that is the reason. Um, you know, there's, there's I, don't, I don't need eight-foot blood pythons. Like, I, I just don't. Right especially angry ones because <laughs> when they're, when they're six feet and angry, it's a formidable animal. It's, it's, you know, comparable with dealing with uh, a 13 foot retic that's angry, you know, it's they're powerful, powerful animals at a smaller size. So. Have you ever accidentally fed like one of your juveniles, something too big? I've done it where I've thawed like 
I don't know if I forgot how big my animal was or I don't know what, but when I pulled the stuff out to thaw and then I go to give it, I'm like, oh, oh, hmm, that's a lot bigger food item so than I thought. I've only had it with a with a juvenile maybe once. Mm-hmm. And, and it wasn't that the prey item was too big for the animal, but it's that Sumatran I have that has that kink in its neck. Mm. And uh, so because the kink is literally right behind the animal's head at like, like a 45 degree angle, let's say I feed it smaller prey items because it's got to squeeze it through that thing. And one day I just overestimated it. And by the time I realized that the animal grabbed it and you're not getting it back at that point, but he trooped it down. Um, and it, like I said, it wasn't too large for him. It was the same size as what his siblings were eating, but I just usually tried to give him something smaller. I did give a prey item too big to my big T positive girl though. Um, a friend of mine gave me some rabbits and I thought it was a rabbit that she could take down. And, uh, you know, I, I pre-killed it and everything and gave it to her and she spent like six hours on it. And I was like, oh man, once I saw her struggling, I'm like, oh man, but now I, I can't stop her at that point. But she was smart enough to realize it was too much for her and eventually gave up on it. And I just, just left it, That's threw it in the woods for the coyotes. But, um, but yeah, I really, I really and to be honest, I think she could take it, but I don't ever challenge her with larger meals. And so I think that was part of the struggle from a body standpoint wise, it w- was certainly smaller than the largest part of her body. So it would, would fit into that dialogue, but just her getting it down through her, you know, down her throat basically was, was a little much for her. And like I said, I think part of it is her, I always feed her smaller meals. So her muscles aren't necessarily used to working that hard. So mm-hmm. I, I think that that came into play. I think if she had been out in the wild routinely eating larger prey items, I don't think she would have had a problem at all. But I'm just thankful that she she figured it out. I was up all night. I fucking had my alarm set on my phone every half hour going in and check <laughs> on her. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, my God. I'm like, either get it down or spit it out. I don't care what you do. But <laughs> right. <laughs> making me a nervous wreck watching make sure her glottis is out and she's breathing and all that. You know? But what do you, I've, I've, I mean, what do, you do if she stops? It's really hard to get What do? What would out. you do? I mean, I would have to try to get in there and get it. I'd probably get some teeth in my hand, but whatever. Yep. Um, and not her trying to bite me, but I would just have to peel back. Yeah, just, yeah. You know, try to get in there. But, uh, you know, try to massage it out or whatever. But no, she she knew she knew what she was doing, and she figured out her limit. And so good for her. And obviously, she's fine now. She's had eggs, and she's doing great. And this was, this was like maybe two months before the breeding season. So I was like, oh, perfect. It's a nice big meal going into the breeding season. You know, rabbits a good lean meat for them, so I was I was all about it. But it was just a little bit bigger than I guess she she wanted to take. I was thinking that I um I've pushed the limits, not meaning to. I don't push the limits with my adults. All of them get you know larges or smaller, and varies. Sometimes they get small, sometimes they get large, sometimes they get medium, whatever it varies. Uh, but the younger ones, I have overestimated the food size when I went and got it out. And it was probably like, it should have been eating a small, but this was like a medium small. You know what I mean? Mm. Just like a tiny bit bigger. And I was like, well, I'll try it. See what happens. And sure enough, it took it down and it was fine and I had no problems. I mean, y'all, you're going to think I'm I'm a terrible person, but part of me is like, well, if you spit it back up, then I knew it was too big, you know? Right. Yeah. And and honestly, it depends on the species too, because like, like retics have an amazing metabolism for a larger snake. So baby retics can eat some pretty good sized meals, but also when you're, when you're doing food trials with new hatchlings, prey size can affect 
their whether they take or not. And sometimes with, yeah. a, with a baby that's not taking well, if you give them an item that almost looks too big for them, sometimes they'll take it. And I don't know what it is, but some of them that just seems to, to trigger it. But you got to think too, like, you know, these animals naturally, they're, they're not, there's not always, you know, day old pink sitting around somewhere or whatever. Like they're, they're muscling down something that they're overpowering somewhere. So, you know, we, uh, we probably baby them too much in certain situations and other situations. We probably aren't as cautious as we should be, but I, I think, uh, when they're younger and have that higher metabolism, I, I think they can truck down some decent sized meals and be okay. Yeah, I agree. Especially younger. Yeah. Um, all right. So we're about at, well, we're exactly at the hour mark at this yeah. point. Um, do you have any final comments that you want to give to the people listening about feeding? I um, think we covered a lot of ground. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's, it's funny. I remember talking and we're like, oh, we're never going to be able to stretch this out. But I, I think this one went a lot better than last one. So hopefully the damn audio recorded this time. I really hope. <laughs> I'm literally getting off of here and like re-listening to it. I'm like, you yeah. <laughs> Apparently Eric said you only got seven seconds in last time. Yeah, so, it's so bizarre, and I don't understand I know, technology, but I could understand zero, and I could understand the whole thing. I don't understand seven seconds. Right, right, whatever, though. Um, I did notice, actually, well, okay, I'll talk to you after the recording. Anyway, okay, so back to the end of this. Um, the last question that I give most people, but sometimes I forget, not going to lie, um, if you had uh, a new keeper, any new keepers, uh, you were giving a speech, a talk to all the new keepers of blood pythons and short tails. What advice would you give them, brand new keepers? Uh, well, the first thing that I, I think is important is just making sure that you're getting the animal that's right for you. And a lot of people want to force animals to fit what they want. So people want like a great display animal. I don't think a blood or short tail is the right choice. So making sure you're picking the right animal to begin with. And then you know, get the animal that you want because it's going to be the one you're most passionate about. And, uh, you know, be open to advice, ask questions. Don't be afraid to ask questions, but try to do a little research and, and ask an intelligent question. Not the, Hey, I just got this and tell me everything I need to know. Um, cause that gets old after a while. Yes. Excuse me. <laughs> it's yes, like, it show, show me something like, Hey, I read this and it said it should be at 88 and I read this that said it should be at 85, which is it? Okay. That shows some effort. Right. You know, Give me something to work right, with. Right. Let me know that you have actually put something, some time into this and then I'm, I'll help you all day. But, uh, but yeah, I think it's just, just be observant and the, you know, these animals will teach you as much as a, a, a good keeper will teach you. So if you're paying attention and you're in tune with that animal, it'll, it'll teach you a lot of things. It'll, it'll tell you, when it's healthy, when it's content, when something's got it stressed out, you know, how you're handling the animal, it's going to let you know how it feels about that. Uh, you know, and that's, that's my favorite thing with these animals is you can kind of feel what's going on with them. When you, when you have them in your hands, you can feel their, their body, how they're moving, how tense they are, how loose they are. And you can just really, really get a good sense of, of the animal that way. So I think people, uh, that would be my best advice is just learn from your animal and learn from other people and, you know, always, always know that there's something more to learn. Well, I like it. I think that wraps this up very, very well. Dan, where can people get a hold of you and what is your YouTube channel so people can get all that information you have on there? Uh, so the YouTube channel and my Instagram are both Dan Magano Snakes. And uh, Instagram is definitely a good place to message me. I typically get those. Facebook, people can message me as well. Uh, I try to respond to every single YouTube comment that I get in some fashion. 
Uh, there are some comments that I just don't even know what to say. So I just walk <laughs> away. That does happen. But, <laughs> but by and large, I try to at least acknowledge every comment on the channel as best I can and get to stuff in a timely fashion. Uh, and, and that's about it. Pretty soon, I'm sure I'll have some, some stuff listed within the next month or two. Uh, I've already had a couple snakes that are on their second meal already and uh, a bunch that have taken one. So pretty soon. Awesome. Well, we definitely look forward to seeing everything that you have going on. And uh, thanks again for being on this uh, podcast with me and talking about food because I love food. Yeah, me too. <laughs> All right. Have a good night, Dan. You as well. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Please feel free to give me a follow on Facebook and Instagram at Bloods by Design. Tag me in your blood python photos at Bloods by Design, hashtag Strictly Shorties, so I can share all the awesome animals you listeners have. And if you have any questions, people you want to hear from, or topics to discuss, you can email those to bloodsbydesign at gmail.com. And, of course, this podcast is supported by the NPR Network, if you want to get a hold of any of the guys at the NPR Network, you can email them at info at MoreliaPythonRadio.com. You can follow them on all the socials and, of course, subscribe to the NPR Network YouTube channel. They have a Patreon where you can support all the NPR podcasts, just like this one, as well as merch. And all of that can be found on their website, MoreliaPythonRadio.com. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll catch you next month for more Strictly Shorties.